This morning, the return of Christ from 2 Peter 3, one of these grand redemptive historical themes. And tonight, a portion of Scripture that more quietly speaks to us about how we are to apply the gospel in our lives together in the communion of the saints. Let's briefly pray. Father, take this word to our hearts and to our souls. Teach us deeply and help us to be obedient to your word. Not because we are justified by obedience, but because we are justified by your grace and we long to obey out of gratitude. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Galatians 6, the first ten verses. This is the word of God. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have, his, have to bear his own load." One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing well or good. For in due season we will reap If we do not give up, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Last time, we saw the outworking of Christian liberty as we saw what it meant to walk in the Spirit, and we looked especially at what it meant to walk in the flesh and defined with some care the flesh, this Pauline view of the flesh, and then looked at what the fruit of the Spirit are and how we are to view the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. The theme here is Christian freedom, keeping in step with the Spirit, and here we come to gospel-centered service one to another. How the fruit of the Spirit is to manifest itself in the body of Christ, and as we live with one another in our homes and in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The fruit of the Spirit, Spirit working itself out in love one to another. The first thing we see then is the call to service. The call to service In the first two verses, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The need that is set forth here in this passage is a Christian who has fallen into inadvertent transgression. This is something that has caught this person unawares. It's a surprise, probably, to this person. It is what we typically call a fall. And when that takes place in the Christian life, it is a sad thing indeed. What are Christians to do? Well, certainly we are not to abandon the person in need. We are not to look the other way. We are to recognize that this is a person purchased in the blood of Christ, and we are to help according to the gifts that God has given to us. And so we are told here that you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The spiritual are to help. Now, this is not elitism. He is talking about all Christians when he talks about the spiritual. It's a reference back to chapter 5, verses 16 through 26, when we read of the fruit of the Spirit in the Christian life. 
And so you who are spiritual are to help to restore that Christian who has inadvertently fallen into some sin. It was not premeditated. He didn't expect it. It's something that caught him off guard, and we are to restore that person. Now, it's very possible because the word restore here is sometimes used of setting bones. It's very possible here that he has something much like that in mind, that we are to mend bones, that we are to set a bone, that we are to do so with great deal of care. With what attitude? I hope if you set my bone, if it's broken, it is with a gentle, restorative attitude. Now, I will tell you that once I was staying with a particular orthopedic surgeon and his family, I was speaking in a certain place, and in the middle of the night, he got this call. He wasn't pleased to receive the call in the middle of the night. He asked if I wanted to go with him to the emergency room and watch him work. I said, sure. Because he wasn't pleased, he, I am convinced, added a certain degree of pain to, uh, to the person that he was restoring. Uh, that is an example of what we are not to do in the Christian walk as we help our brothers. I remember his going, you know, and, and really causing pain. Let's not do that. We are to gently restore one another with that restorative, gentle, kind, meek attitude, administered in such a way that no stigma remains, so that when the person is restored, never again is it brought up. We do not dwell upon it. We do not think upon it. That person is a part of the body of Christ, and we all are sinners saved by grace. You know, I will say something. That is an attitude that I believe I find in this congregation. I want to encourage and commend. I think it is a wonderful thing. I've seen, I've seen other church settings in which that has not been the case. And yet I have seen often uh, how this congregation has taken this to heart. And when we have restored and when we have loved and cared for someone who has fallen, and who of us hasn't fallen, we have not in any way remembered it. It's something in the past. This is good, and it's something that should continue here. The source of gentleness, of course, is the Holy Spirit. In verse 23, we read, gentleness, self-control, against such things there is no law. And so there's the need, inadvertent transgression, and the call to restore. But in that process, we are also in this text called upon to an appropriate self-watchfulness. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted." Because you can sin just as severely as the brother or sister who has fallen into sin. You will never be a restorer until, until you realize two things. First, you realize that you also are capable of sin just like your brother or sister who has fallen into transgression. And secondly, the Lord has restored you. If we realize that the Lord has restored ourselves, has restored me, then we can be a restorer of others. The involvement of caring for members of the church can be so deep, however, that you may forget your own weakness and be tempted to sin. And so I think it requires a great deal of wisdom to know what situations you are gifted to help in and in what situations perhaps you might be tempted if you are involved. Leadership can be very helpful here. Sometimes it will be necessary for an elder to say, you know, this is a particular situation in which it really might not be best for you to get involved because I know your tendency and because I know your own temptations and I know your own sins. Perhaps you should help this person with this and we'll ask this person to help with this particular situation. So the involvement, I think, requires a certain degree of wisdom. Wisdom, and not everyone can serve in the same way, but we all are called to serve one another. We may not 
remain aloof. In verse 2, when it says, bear one another's burdens, one another's or each other's is actually the first word in the Greek text. It's emphasizing each other, one another's burdens we must help with. It's a present imperative also, indicating that it's a lifestyle, this helping, this restoring, this caring, this loving that fulfills the law of Christ. A gospel context implying wholehearted service because we have been served. The burdens of fellow Christians are ours because we are in union with Christ and therefore are in union one with another. You know, among the various ways in which we help one another, the most difficult, I think, is one that we're actually called to with some frequency, and that is confrontation, confronting one another. That's a hard thing to do. And when I say confrontation, I do not mean that you come to someone with an angry face or an angry attitude, but if you see something in my life, come to me and tell me. You know, someone did that to me recently, and I was so very glad. Someone in this congregation, I was so pleased. Have you done that one with another? Do you confront one another? Do you actually go to someone and say, I see a fault that you really need to correct. I see something in your life that you need to address. That is our calling in the church. Are you willing to do this? Have you done this? And, of course, that means, again, being very wise and recognizing we don't all grow in the same way and in the same degree into the same, into the same level overnight. It means here that we must have a... Uh, an attitude that recognizes this is the communion of the saints. Now, the word community, I think, is a very overworked word right now. You know, I was going down looking at the why one day, you know, come be a part of our community, and we are a growing community, and so forth. Community is just all over the place. Uh, Postmodernism emphasizes community, so that community sometimes doesn't mean a lot. That old expression, the communion of the saints, that says a lot. And I think that word koinonia, communion, fellowship, one with another as a body of saints, those called to be holy in Christ, tells us exactly the attitude that we are to have as we minister one to another. So in verses 1 and 2, we have a call to service. And then secondly, we have, uh, we have gospel self-evaluation. Let's read verses 3 to 5 again. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one test his own work And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So in verse 3, when it says, for if anyone thinks he is something, that is to say, he thinks he is exalted above burden bearing. I don't need to help my neighbor with his burden because I'm above this. When he really is nothing, according to verse 3, that is to say, all we have is by grace, I'm really nothing. Any gift I have comes from him. Any grace I have comes from his fatherly hand. You see, it requires humility to bear burdens. If we are are too self-important in our own eyes, we will never be burden bearers. We are too self-important to do so unless we realize that everything that we have comes from Christ. So when we read in verse 4, but let each one of you test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Each one must prove his own work, the text says. We do not compare ourselves to others, in other words. I cannot help because I'm inferior. That's not correct. I will not help because I'm superior. That is not correct. Live your life so as to produce praiseworthiness, and then you are less likely to relate to others in pride. 
remember we stand alone in the righteousness of Christ before one another. And so we are told by Paul in verse 5, for each one will have to bear his own load. Now in verse 2, we read, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And here in verse 5, we are told we must bear each his own load. This is not a contradiction. It seems that Paul has the judgment in mind in this verse. When no one can look to the failings of another to justify himself, as we sometimes do when we become arrogant in view of other people's faults, but each must stand in the merit of Christ. Looking to your own heart and seeing your need of Christ on the great day of judgment is the antidote to self-delusion and pride. Who looking to the needs of his own heart will boast at the expense of someone else? Who looking to the needs of his own heart for sovereign free grace will look to another believer who is struggling with temptation and sin and be proud and arrogant about it? Caring with those struggling with sin must be done with this attitude of humility. But then thirdly, we see that we do not go it alone in the body of Christ. For we are told in verse 6, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Learn to shoulder your own pack by being discipled. Learn to carry your own burden by being taught how to do it. Learn how to do what is being taught you here by learning the Word of God under your God-ordained teachers. The New Testament teaches office, that there is office in the church. And the office of pastor-teacher is clearly what he has in mind here, though it's applicable to many other settings. We are each responsible, but God has provided teachers to help us. There is no radical individualism in the Church of Jesus Christ, but we are called to be a part of a church in which there are God-ordained and called instructors. And so if you are instructed, you have the responsibility to your teacher, to his preaching office, to meet his physical needs. The word that's actually used here is the word koinonia, again. It's you are to, to fellowship. You see, one who is taught the word must koinonia, share all good things with the one who teaches. Uh, for those of you who take notes, Philippians 1.5, Hebrews 13.17, 1 Corinthians 9.4-14 through 14 are all parallel passages. <clears throat> so this is another illustration of loving behavior in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this gives a glimpse of how Paul values the means of grace and the ministry of the word as he tells those who are taught to share with those who teach, which you certainly have done extremely well with this teaching elder. Now, the fourth thing we see in this text is sowing and reaping. He says in verses 7 and 8, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The false teachers, the Judaizers in the churches of Galatia, are not sharing in the gospel. Reject the gospel you reject it with consequences. Do not delude yourselves, says Paul the Apostle. God is not mocked. You had better sow what is consistent with the gospel. What you sow, you will also reap. If you reap to the flesh, you will reap corruption. This is the person who is obsessed with himself. 
If you reap to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. And the Apostle Paul is dwelling upon Hosea chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, for those of you who want to look at it later. It's a harvest mentality to which he calls the believer in Christ. How to sow to the Spirit? Living out the gospel, living out of the fullness of the gospel, feeding the gospel within your heart with more gospel. And I think that we should see this as an encouragement to persevere in well-doing. Those who help the fallen and share with the minister of the word, sow in the spirit and reap eternal life. This is not salvation by works, but Paul does justice to the true transformation that the spirit of God has brought about in the believer's life. It is encouraging, if awesome, that the believer moves toward the day in which he will reap eternal life. And it shows now because we sow unto it. Then fifthly, the Apostle Paul, as he gives these instructions to the church, says to each of us, do not grow weary in well-doing or in doing good. Do not grow weary. Look at verses 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Here in verses 9 and 10, we have the concept of delay. That is to say that gospel fruit grows slowly. And one of the reasons, by the way, that we should be very careful in the way in which we, in which we look at other believers and make judgments is because the Lord is at work in the lives of his people in various ways. And what might be in our own eyes an imperceptible growth in grace might be in God's sight a quantum leap in growth in grace. And so we should be very, very careful. This concept of delay. The Christian is called to do good after the pattern of our Lord. And I think the ESV and the NIV are misleading here by translating it opportunity. Look again at verses 9 and 10. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Let me read to you my own translation of the passage. So then, while we have time, let us work to do good to all, most of all to those of the household of faith. Do you see the difference? The ESV and NIV translate the word opportunity. I have retained the word time. So then, while we have time, let us work to do good for all, most of all to those of the household of faith. I think the ESV and NIV are missing the eschatological thrust of the passage. The time that Paul has in mind anticipates the time that we shall reap in verse 9. So he means the time between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. During this time, believers in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ must be busy with loving, concern, and caring needs. It's very much what we saw in 2 Peter 3 this morning, that our lives are, be, are to be determined as we focus upon that hope that awaits us, that eschatological return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as my hope and my focus are upon Him who is coming again, then that affects how I live, my manner of life, and my personal godliness. 
Now, the Apostle Paul is saying the same here. We have a time between the ascension and the return of Christ, and that is the time that is given us to do good to the glory of God in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the world. And so, the Apostle Paul means the time between the ascension and the return of Jesus, which is the time, the season of sowing and planting, the time that we are now given to do good for the glory of God. So, Paul never sees the good works of believers as a ground of acceptance by God, not even a coordinate instrument for acceptance with God, but our works do manifest a true faith. As our Westminster Confession says it, fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. Now, that's what Paul is saying. So, to all people we are to do good, but especially to those of the household of faith. Look again at verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity or time, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Doing good to others knows no limits. Remember the Good Samaritan. But Christians are called overtly to give special attention to caring for the people of God, the blood-bought and the redeemed, those who are a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly those, he says, of the household of faith, so that that focuses your ministry. Recently, there was a pastor in a, a particular setting who told new converts who were brought into church membership, this is the last Sunday that this church is about you. It will never be about you again. His point was that when you come into this church and become a member of this church, our concern is totally focused on people who are outside, and the church is never about those who are within. That's simply not biblical. I've said over and over through the years, the best in-reach provides for the best outreach. John 17 teaches that in Jesus' high priestly prayer. It says, we love one another that it shows in the world. And so as we love and care one for another, that provides the foundation, the basis, even the testing ground for appropriate outreach into the world around us. I want to read something to you from J. Gresham Machen, Christianity and Liberalism. And uh, if you've never read Christianity and Liberalism, it's an extraordinarily important book in the history of thought. Machen, of course, in this book is saying that liberalism is not Christianity. And in this particular section, he is dealing with the whole, the whole idea of what today we call community. And this is what Machen says. Listen carefully. Very different is this Christian conception of brotherhood from the liberal doctrine of the brotherhood of man. The modern liberal doctrine is that all men everywhere, no matter what their race or creed, are brothers. There's a sense in which this doctrine can be accepted by the Christian. The relation in which all men stand to one another is analogous to some important respect, in some important respects uh, to the relation of brotherhood. All men have the same creator and have the same nature. The Christian man can accept all that mo the modern liberal means by the brotherhood of man, but the Christian knows also of a relationship far more intimate than that general relationship of man to man, and it is for this more intimate relationship that he reserves the term brother. The true brotherhood, according to Christian teaching, is the brotherhood of the redeemed. There's nothing narrow about such teaching. For the Christian brotherhood is open without distinction to all, and the Christian man seeks to bring all men in. Christian service, it is true, is not limited to the household of faith. 
All men, whether Christians or not, are our neighbors if they be in need. But if we really love our fellow men, we shall never be content with binding up their wounds or pouring on oil and wine or rendering them, um, rendering them any such lesser service. We shall indeed do such things for them, but the main business of our lives will be to bring them to the Savior of their souls. It is upon this brotherhood of twice-born sinners, this brotherhood of the redeemed, that the Christian founds the hope of society. He finds no solid hope in the improvement of earthly conditions or the molding of human institutions under the influence of the golden rule. These things are indeed to be welcomed. They may so palliate the symptoms of sin that there may be time to apply the true remedy. They may serve to produce conditions upon the earth favorable to the propagation of the gospel message. They are even valuable for their own sake. But in themselves, their value to the Christian is certainly small. A solid building cannot be constructed when all the materials are faulty. A blessed society cannot be formed out of men who are still under the curse of sin. Human institutions are really to be molded not by Christian principles accepted by the unsaved, but by Christian men. The true transformation of society will come by the influence of those who have themselves been redeemed. Thus Christianity differs from liberalism in the way in which the transformation of society is conceived. But according to Christian belief, as well as according to liberalism, there is really to be a transformation of society. It is not true that the Christian evangelist is interested in the salvation of individuals without being interested in the salvation of the race. And even before the salvation of all society has been achieved, there is already a society of those who have been saved. That society is the church. The church, listen to this, the church is the highest Christian answer to the social needs of man. The church is the highest Christian answer to the social needs of man. I don't know if you know how important that is. I hope you contemplate it. But it's directly applicable to what we find here in this passage. We are to do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. Because the Christian church could be involved in doing all sorts of things that in themselves would be good. But if we forget that one thing to which we are first and foremost called, which is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we become merely another do-gooder of society. Simply another group like any other group that may be doing charitable work. No, we have a distinct calling, and it is the preaching of the gospel. In Matthew 25, <clears throat> I remember preaching this text years ago and, pass, and, and pointing to Matthew 25, when you have done this to the least of these, my brothers. Calvin says on that, We must be prodigiously insensitive if compassion be not drawn from our bowels by this statement, that Christ is either neglected or honored in the persons of those who need our assistance. So then, when we are reluctant to assist the poor... May the Son of God come before our eyes to whom to refuse anything is monstrous sacrilege. So, I think Calvin is absolutely right. This is certainly according to the, to the gospel message. When we see those texts in the prophets about the needy and the hungry and caring for the poor, it does have a broad application to our love and care for those around us, whoever they may be, 
who are needy and who are hungry and who are poor. But it has a first application, and that first application is to the church. Society's true fulfillment is in the church, and secular society is merely a poor substitute for true fellowship in the body of Christ. Human suffering and wretchedness, my friends, we see it all around us. We see it all around. Let us meet it as Christians in this world as God enables us so to do. But let us remember to take the gospel of Christ to those who are in such desperate need of a relationship with the Lord. But when even a cup of cold water is given in his name, it shows that we live in a day of new beginnings. Galatians 6 then tells us to understand that to be interested in spiritual things means to be interested in material things. It tells us that matter matters. Christians are not Gnostics. We care about eating and drinking and living and loving. We care about material things. It teaches us to have hearts broken by the fallenness of the world that Christ came to redeem. And when we do not do so, we have, we have failed to apply the gospel. We do not have to look far to apply this, do we? All you have to do is look to the person next to you in your pew.